Hi, this is Darcy Rowling, and welcome to the Women 17 podcast, conversations with global women changing the world one sustainable development goal at a time. In each fortnightly interview, we'll learn about these women's journeys, challenges, successes, which SDGs their work contributes to both globally and locally, as well as hear tips on how our listeners can participate in the advancement of the sustainable development goals. Hi, listeners. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Natalie Roshnick, Senior Nutrition Advisor at Save the Children UK. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you, Darcy, and happy to be here. Great. So lovely to have you. Thanks so much for agreeing to do the podcast. Um, And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today about children's nutrition. Uh, But before we get started, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, As I mentioned, Natalie is a senior nutrition advisor at Save the Children UK, as well as a technical lead for nutrition programming in non-humanitarian settings. Natalie is a public health nutritionist with a master's um, in science from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine with over 20 years experience supporting nutrition and public health programs in Africa and in Asia. Natalie is also a doctorate student at the Institute of Global Health at the University of Geneva. And Natalie lives in Annecy, France, very close to me with her family. (laughs) We actually are boot camp buddies. (laughs) Um, So lots to unpack. I've had a very long um, keen interest in um, in nutrition um, programming in humanitarian settings. So really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, So first love to kick off and ask you um, about how you became interested in public health and nutrition. Um, well, it was a bit by luck, actually. I hadn't sort of planned to be um, to get into public health nutrition specifically, but I was always interested in development from from a child because I had grandpa- quite unusual grandparents, I would say, who who um, lived many years in Africa uh, in what was used to be Rhodesia, and uh, sort of sort of got very into involved in sort of agriculture and uh, sort of my my grandfather was. Um, quite an anti-apartheid activist. Well, activist, I would say he wouldn't have maybe called himself that. He, he was sort of more of a, maybe a good Christian and couldn't understand the apartheid regime. But he, they stayed there 30 years. My, my mother grew up there and they then moved to North Wales and lived incredibly simply with toilets that you had to empty outside and no electricity, cold one tap of running water so we when we went to visit uh, them which was once or twice a year it was always a you know quite an inspiring experience where we just sort of lived very simply and so it and then we had they had all these people from Africa turning up which sort of so that gave me an interest in development and wanting to get in, involved in development um, but then um, so then I did after I did do a, a degree an undergrad in development studies uh, three years at University of East Anglia which was great I had a great time but I didn't feel like I'd learned particularly any useful skills I could use so then I went off to teach um, English as a foreign language uh, for two years and then I came back to do nutrition um, a public health nutrition at London School of Hygiene uh, and actually I got into nutrition because it was actually the only masters that I could do uh, without a Bachelor of Science. I had a BA in Development Studies. So I, I, well, it was that and health promotion, I decided to do nutrition. So it wasn't sort of that I was interested in nutrition for always, I just got into it. And then, of course, I now love it and find it incredibly interesting. 
Well, uh, thank you. That there's a lot to unpack there. They're very interesting grandparents you have. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, is there a documentary or a book on them? It's very they have a few books, yes. And in fact, my grandfather's a national hero in Heroes Acre in Zimbabwe now because of that work. He's one of the few white people there. No, very interesting. He died now, 20, 15 years ago. So, but mm-hmm. various things. Yeah, wow. Guy Clutton Brock was his name. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. And then had you, um, as a child, did you travel to Rhodesia or did you in Zimbabwe um, there yourself? Yeah, we went there when I was 11 about with my family. So my brother, sister, my parents and my mother was so so she was it was very emotional for her because she she grew up there. She was a child there. So she gets all emotional with the when she sees the red earth and things like that but yeah so we went there just for a holiday and we did safaris we did typical holiday things <laughs> yeah I think that's amazing I think you know you just while you were speaking and you said you know that you know you had um, they had lots of um, African visitors in in their home um, it's interesting because for me you know my background is in Chinese studies and uh and I we had like a Japanese exchange student came and in the 70s my brother was learning Chinese and all these kinds of things sort of started to form my interest uh, you know unbeknownst to me in China um, mm. and in Asia so um, it's very interesting how those formative years um, can shape you and what you're exposed to so yeah um, absolutely yeah, interesting. And um, you mentioned that you were teaching English. So where whereabouts did you go uh, to teach English? So I actually went, yes, yeah, so I went, no, in fact, I went after my University of East, my bachelor's in development studies, I went to Indonesia. In fact, I went on an expert before I taught English, that did the English teaching. I did an expedition in Indonesia. And it was, <laughs> it was an ethnobotanical expedition where we sort of collected, lived in the middle of a rainforest reserve in a village it was the most it's actually I would say the most remote experience I've ever had since uh, in my life where we lived literally on the floor of a a village chief with the chickens screeching underneath and um, and so we so we did that for six months approximately and then I went and and did a English language teaching course in Cairns in Australia and then I taught English in Australia New Zealand and then back in the UK before doing my masters which was which was brilliant. I learned so many useful skills I feel like are still useful today because you sort of have to learn how to manage a group and make sure it keeps moving and, you know, vary activities, which I think you can use in any kind of meeting environment or all sorts of workshoppy. So I still kind of go back mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, I guess you were helping the Australians learn how to speak English. Too. <laughs> it's funny. Mostly it was actually it was all mostly Asian people. So I'm, I'm Asian, sure. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Sorry to all my Aussie mates. Yeah, I didn't mean anything mean by that. But <laughs> oh, oh, fantastic. And I think that's really interesting what you said um, that, you know, that because you had a bachelor's of, of arts, that that sort of limited the scope of what you could study um i you know that's um you know that that's unfortunate but i mean i guess it's great to where it's led you in the career path that you've gone on but uh you know i 
I've been telling my kids, you know, just do what you want to do and you'll, you know, it all sort out at the end and, and as such, um, you know, sort of figure, you'll figure it out as you go along, um, have some direction, but you don't actually need to know what the destination is. So, yeah, it's true. I agree with that. I mean, there are things that limit you that might restrict your options, which yeah. in that case did, but I do think you're right. You just go a lot, go. I definitely feel like it was sort of luck that brought this or that to me. And that's how I ended up doing what I was doing. Not all. Hmm. Interesting. And so, um, and so when you were, um, your, um, focus in, uh, health and nutrition, was that, um, did that have a development bent to it or yes? Okay. Yeah. So the, the masters was at the, I definitely wanted to get into, no, in fact, I wanted to get into education. That's what I actually was more interested, especially after done English teaching as a foreign language for so many, for a couple of years. But in fact, you had to do, um, two years of, um, teachers training teach for two t- you had to do the teacher training then teach for two years and then you could do a, a master's in education and development because I definitely wanted the link with development uh, so that was just too many years <laughs> so um, I, that's why I went for the, I applied for the London School of Hygiene masters and there were two there was health promotion and public health nutrition that I could apply for mm-hmm. uh, I think I must have applied for anthropology and other things like that but anyway I ended up getting into nutrition in that way um, and then so I, I did the nutrition and then my uh, I was really lucky well I, I don't know if you want me to go on to the next thing but I was sort of looking for any job abroad overseas it's, it's really hard when you have got no experience literally I had that little experience in Indonesia so I wrote to every single NGO and organization in London I was there at the time and everyone said no you need experience no you need experience I, I think I finally got an interview for a for to to go and work in the Gaza Strip for a small local NGO and I I was absolutely useless at the interview I remember still remember how bad I was but I did they did remember that I spoke French and so somehow I then was linked up with to someone else who was looking for an intern to go to to Mali uh, to be an intern in Mali uh, on a school health and nutrition program so in the end it wasn't that was less nutrition focused program even there's nutrition in the name but it's all about school based working with school to improve the health and nutrition of children and we called it healthy to learn and learn to be healthy but uh, so I got into education that way as I ended up working in the education systems through health and nutrition which was interesting. Hmm, Interesting and so that was um, that was through that that NGO and then the programming you did was you went out to schools is that uh, into communities what did you how did that go how did you yeah um, so I was uh, so this was with Save the Children US at the time as they were all sort of divided up but I, I and um, and so I lived in the in the field area which was the sort of about four hours from Bamako and we had I was an intertide a mud heart it was it was again another really experience a, a interesting experience but we basically were setting up a new school health and nutrition program uh, which involved sort of doing first doing a, a big survey with the National Research Institute to understand what the health problems were amongst school children um, and then uh, developing sort of the designing the program with my colleagues uh, in Mali I mean, they mostly, it's all there. I, I was just sort of helping out. And then, uh, yeah, putting in place sort of all the, so that included then, then eventually you had to train all the teachers to kind of teach health, but also give deworming tablets and iron tablets and all these sort of quick, easy solutions that you can do in schools to help children be sort of healthier and learn better. 
Um, and then, yes, yeah, so there was a lot of monitoring and evaluation. So you then do surveys to evaluate the impact um, or I don't, you know, see how well your project has done. Uh, and then a lot of work as well with, I guess, with government because there wasn't at the time a national school health and nutrition program. So generally you would sort of try and build the evidence through these projects. I and mean, this is what a lot of NGOs do. Build the evidence, generate to show that it has an impact, that it's important, it's an important intervention. And then sort of use that to advocate for a national program or more funding for the program that's already in policy, that sort of thing. Extraordinary. That's a, that, in, that you learned and experienced all of that in a six-month internship. So that yeah. I ended up in Mali for two years. Um, oh, right. <laughs> so I did one year of internship. Then they kept me on as a national advisor, uh, sort of a, as a local sort of hire. So I did, yeah, so it, it was an amazing experience. I mean, I literally arrived knowing, well, I thought I knew a lot when I came out of my master's I thought I'd learn all these great things sure I'm going to teach thought, oh, them a few God. things <laughs> yeah I, th I thought so but I arrived and I realized I didn't really know anything and it was just all the things you, you you don't learn in school basically you know how the aid sector works how governments work how the health system the education systems work how you work and and you know all my colleagues who had so much experience so it was definitely me learning uh from everybody else more than helping out but that's I was very lucky to have that first experience and get me into that development world because world, it, it's quite hard to get the first experience I think. Hmm. Well I'd say there's a, a certainly a lesson to be learned here even if you have a really bad interview for uh, <laughs> one post they might call you back so don't be discouraged because clearly this has set the trajectory for your whole career. I mean, you know, having this opportunity and, and certainly having the language skills that they required at the time. So, um, yeah, that's yeah, definitely, definitely. It, and I think just go for interviews and all, anything. I think that's also for me a lesson is just to keep your, all your doors open because you never know quite what's going to turn up at the other yeah. side, at the other end. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's, um, I'd love to sort of uh, shift gears just a little bit and talk about, um, you know, the, this conversation is not meant to be about Save the Children, but I think it is interesting to, for our listeners to learn a little bit. It's about you and your, your career journey and, and, and programming in, in nutrition and health, I think is, is just fascinating and of course, very important. Um, so I wonder if you could just walk us through um, a little bit about how the organization um, operates do they um, do they operate sort of like spoken hub out of a central um, HQ? Um, you know, tell us tell us a little bit about how the organization works because I think some people because you work for the UK um, entity um, if I can call it the entity um, and so yeah I think that's quite interesting for our listeners to understand how an international uh, non uh, non governmental organization AKA INGO works. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes, and actually, um, I mean, over the 20 years I've worked for Save the Children, it's changed quite a lot. Um, so when I started, there were 30 different Save the Children. There were Save the Children UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, mostly northern countries who were the fundraisers. And then each country had, so for example, in Mali, it was Save the Children, U there was a Save the Children US office, there was a Save the Children UK office, there was maybe another one, I don't can't remember, but it was there was a lot of duplication. So over the last... 15 years they, they've just been a lot of restructuring and now what we have is sort of about 
probably about 30 Save the Children members who are still the UK, US, etc., who do the fundraiser and have technical expertise. And then you have an operational arm called Save the Children International, whose the headquarter is in London. And that one sort of manages all the country offices. I guess all the country offices, all the staff in country offices work for Save the Children International. I work for Save the Children UK. But we all work together with one common strategy, one common mission, and it is one big organisation compared to when I was 15 years ago. And this is, I guess it's quite similar to all of the other INGOs work in a similar way, maybe a little bit different, but... Um, you know, I know Médecins Sans Frontières have, have their different MSFs as well. Um, sometimes they're divided up technically or sometimes by region or sometimes, yeah, they, they vary. But that's how Save the Children is. I wouldn't say that everything's perfect. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, one arm for the fundraising and one arm for managing, you know, international and as such and coordinating those those global initiatives. Um, so now I'd, I'd love to talk, uh, deep dive a little bit into um, the nutritional programming that you focus on. Um, could you walk us through, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit uh, a few moments ago uh, about your work in Mali, but I think it'd be really great to sort of understand um, you know, I think you had said you did an you know, needs assessment and sort of just understanding at a high level, how, how do you go in to do nutritional um, programming? Like what are the steps um, in order to, um, to begin this process and, and, and so forth? And, you know, you did end up saying, yeah, you lead, leading to measurement, but um, I think there's a lot before, before that happens. So, um, and one last question while you're, while you're answering this is, I'm just curious to know if you build programming and then get funding, which is what you, you mentioned just a minute ago, or sometimes is it the other way around? You get the funding and then you build it. So thank you. Yeah, so that's a good question because I think it, yeah, it depends on the funding for, for, source. Um, so uh, when I was for my 15 years when I was with Save the Children US, we had a, a big um, private source of funds for child sponsorship and so we were able to have very long-term programs which we designed ourselves together I mean with ourselves with our countries and so on um, and then had a long-term whereas now I'm working with Save the Children UK I'm working mostly on under five not school health and nutrition programs but more under five uh, you know young mater maternal and young child nutrition programs and these are usually donor funded so they would be funded either by you know bilaterals USAID, UK aid those kind of donors or EU or, or, or private you know philanthropist donors so usually in that case you would have a funding a do you'd have a donor then you'd write a proposal I mean sometimes there's calls for proposals that come out from the the big bilaterals like USAID, UK, UK etc they call an EU there'd be calls for proposal who's saying exactly what they want and those those calls are usually designed in country between government and the donor and they say this is what we need we want uh, an organization who's going to help pr reduce the prevalence of malnutrition in five districts over a five-year period and so then it's an open bid and all of the NGOs and the various whatever organizations will apply and have to write a proposal bid is like a bid so you have to mm -hmm. say exactly how you're going to do it how you budget it so that's the, the the time when you would design it with so we'd work I would work with my colleagues in the past two years with COVID it's been more challenging normally you'd be in country and you'd all work together but we've been doing this over online which was is harder but we managed 
Um, and so you'd, yeah, you'd design it, you'd p- put your proposal together, and then if it gets funded, if it's successful and gets funded, then you would sort of have a proper, more of a, you know, you'd sort of work out through all the details and figure it, work through that you have to hire staff to then mm-hmm. support the implementation and so on. So, but it usually always, yes, there's always, um, I mean, the standard programming steps would be to start with a situation analysis where you try and understand you have to have a very good understanding of the situation any work that's been done before what's worked well what's not worked well what the prevalence and the determinants of malnutrition are for example in a specific context because they vary and then design you know your interventions based on that it's also about you know strength it has to be about strengthening the existing systems the health health and nutrition systems or education system um building you know working always working with government to kind of fill gaps um either you know generate some kind of research or understanding or help understand issues and bottlenecks or but also filling gaps when there's not enough funding many of these governments don't have enough funding to implement the basic nutrition health nutrition intervention so usually the projects would be helping fill a gap that's in policy but that is not there's not enough funding to implement or capacity mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and um, uh, this is a silly, well, maybe it's not a silly question, but as you're preparing, as you're doing the analysis in order to determine, you know, what exactly is required to, as you said, to fill those gaps, um, I, I would imagine you have to do a lot of research. Um, on the ground research? Um, is that reaching out to other uh, and other government, offic- government officials, other nonprofits? Like how does one go about doing something like that? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And you can do, you know, there's always more and more that you could do. But no, generally you would we'd have you know you'd review all the sec- existing data so we have like demographic health surveys which will have the prevalence of all sort you know statistics and from by district even uh, all sorts of yeah national surveys so you'd get that and then yes definitely discussions with uh, you know district level counterparts um and so yes and then you might do normally you'd do it when you're when you have the funding you would then do a, a baseline survey to kind of it's also to evaluate the impact or evaluate your program to see if you've had done, you know, had the impact that you were hoping to have. Mm-hmm. And sorry, is that survey done through the people or I guess parents or government? Who do you send that survey to? Who's who are so, you trying to get feedback so, from? Yes, for a typical nutrition project, you would actually it would be what we'd call a household survey. So we'd have a, a local research institution and teams of enumerators, as they call surveyors, who would go from house to house in a sample of households. Um, and then they would go and interview the mother, uh, measure the child to see, you know, how malnourished he is. So that's taking their weight and their height. In some case, maybe a little blood little finger blood pick to see if they're anemic uh, depends on the survey but <clears throat> and then they would analyze so that would be when we did the school surveys you would go to the schools and then you would um, do this assessment in the school so it would include generally an interview of the mother to understand what the behaviors are or what's you know are they exclusively breastfeeding what are they feeding their the child and themselves every day and then measuring their health status as well mm-hmm. right and so that data 
I mean, I imagine that takes several months in order to, yes. to collate that yeah, data. Yeah, yeah. And then that's fed back to, to you as you start to design the programming. Yeah. And in fact, we also then do usually because that gives you sort of quantitative information and prevalence. But you to understand what's really going on behind underneath that you usually need to do qualitative research we sort mm-hmm. of call it formative research and um, we just did one in we did used I mean often that would take that would be sort of like what we'd call focus group discussions we'd get women together and talk about an issue and say what are the issues for you what are the challenges are you not able to get the health centre why etc and get information that that would be the more sort of traditional way or or key informant interviews which are more open and just you allow people to just talk about what their issues. But we did. We just used a, a very different approach in Malawi just lately, uh, where we had a group called uh, Empatica who trained uh, my own colleagues to go and live in the ha- in the households for four days and four nights. I was supposed to go and I had to come back and do the same thing. It was it was quite an experience because these are ext- extremely poor households. This was in Malawi, mm-hmm. um, and they had to sleep there and live like you know. Um, just to be a live and observe what was going on and just chat informally and get information that way and in fact I f- the information that came was much more rich in a way because you you live you live the life of these people that you're going to be have your program for so you sort of really understand the issues in a completely different way and especially when you interview people they never really tell you exactly what the issues are they tell you what you want to know but so it was <coughs> I think there for me that was a, a new experience of really a different type more ethnographical type of research where you sort of live and find out so you know they had to you know they they walked with the mother to the health center to understand what it was they found that they got to the health center that if they didn't have a husband with them they would get sometimes um sorry fined because there's a where they want to encourage husbands to come to the mother to the he- with the mother or the pregnant mother to the health center and so if they're not there they find them or put them in slower queues there was a lot of discrimination happening at the health center for example but also just the the time they would take to walk from you know the house to the health center was sometimes three four hours crossing rivers heavily pregnant with a baby on your back and you can understand why you don't want to go very often to the health center to go and get your pre-pregnancy checkup or your post-pregnancy and then if you arrive then in your queue and you sit around in the hot sun for hours and you know so those kind of things just find out and just that the you know what a woman does in a day waking up all night for her child then having to walk to the field and what does she do with her child when she's when she's you know in, in the field and the breastfeeding issues and all these issues that are, are, are hard to you would definitely not get understand them in the same way from a, a just a survey coming to interview for an hour and going off again Mm, so yeah that was (laughs) that's fascinating i mean i guess at the end of the day though i mean that's how people live so they wouldn't Mm -hmm. even think that they should tell you that because it it doesn't even occur to them yeah this is something like oh and i have to wait in the queue and you know i mean maybe you know and i have to sit here if i don't have my husband or i have to walk and i have to walk through all this you know exactly high water (laughs) it wouldn't be something that one would convey you know it'd be like okay and then i go to the health center (laughs) so bypass you know all of the hardship that get gets one there and they might say it might take me three hours but that uh that's not the full picture um exactly probably because we don't you know i mean i think about that myself also you know sometimes you just omit details because you don't think either you don't think they're important or 
where you, you just think everybody knows it, right? Exactly. Because, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then yeah. some issues that are more sensitive, like sort of, you know, um, issues with maybe relationships with a husband or not being able to get... You know, there's often issues with between decision making, whether how, who who owns the money, who's in control of the money, but also some gender-based violence, which they'd call, you know, some sort of, if someone, you, you, it's hard to get that in an interview. So sort of building a relationship with someone over four days. So some of my colleagues are now best friends with, <laughs> they call each other, say, how are you doing? So, you know, it's it's definitely a different approach. Hmm. And is that, is this, uh, I would imagine that, well, it takes time. You said it's four days. I would imagine it's expensive because you're embedding somebody in there for four days. Um, what is a, a good size um, poll or survey of doing these kinds of immersive um, research? How, how, how many of these kinds of, what would you call that? Like an interview, not an interview, like an immersive yeah, it's called we they call it immersion research. So so okay. it's it's a smallest it's different like this was 12 households they went okay. to in, mm-hmm. across two districts. Mm-hmm. Um so it's not many and that's mm-hmm. why quantitative would be thousands of households. Sure. Yeah. And so usually the, the ideal is to have both then you just sort of bring the two before uh, together. But the the qualitative um is usually a much smaller sample so you go much much more in depth and you spend more time to get really to the bottom of the bottom of the issues but often they repeat themselves so after you'll find that if you have 20 households you'll the same issues will be coming up so you're not mm-hmm. maybe necessarily going to be getting uh, extra information mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It validates. It validates the. It, it validates. Yeah. So the more yeah. the better. But yeah, it's, it's it's all about budget. I mean, budgeting immersion is not very expensive because you're not uh, not necessarily very expensive because our people are living in these households for not very much. Mm. Uh, but um, but it was more for us in that case. We had a this organization called Empatico, are experts at immersion research, but also people driven design, which is what the second stage we did to try and help us design the solutions with the the communities themselves mm-hmm. and um and they trained us so we had to obviously pay them to to train us to do all of these things which was i think an amazing experience for my for myself and our colleagues in country we had to learn how to just um have conversations <laughs> things like that that we weren't so used to it was really interesting yeah. So yeah, human yeah. human centered design. So, human, yeah. yeah well, human they call it people people centered. It's human centered design, but reworded to people driven design. So it's it's much more in the hands of the people identifying their own solutions versus there, there's a nuance in fact between the two. Interestingly, yeah. uh, but yes. So this is more where the people we facilitate the people finding their own solutions. So in this one case, they were there was it was about playing with your child. How do we one of the findings were the children, you know, no, the children were not being stimulated at all from a child development perspective. So it, it, one of the groups then went and then did how could we, you know, help find ways of playing with a child too. And so they, they started, they themselves thought, oh, we could maybe make toys. So they did a whole toy creation with local materials. And then all the adolescent boys came and everybody came and they loved making, trying to find, and then making toys that didn't work quite well because they were a bit too hard, break too easily. Oh, well, let's try a different way. So trying different solutions. So that is, they were driving it, but our Save the Children colleagues were kind of facilitating the the thing. Whereas human centers, I think you come with a 
bit of a solution and then you test it with the people and then yeah, you come yeah. back. It's a little bit less, yeah, not yeah. people driven as much. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's really interesting. I'm going to do a little Super bit of Super interesting, on, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of reading on that. And I think it's really nice that, you know, in, in organizations, um, you know, that these big international organizations that are, uh, you know, such as Save the Children are open to new ideas and looking at new ways of um, gathering research, and, mm. you know, and, and probably getting probably a lot closer to finding solutions or the right solution by having this kind of this kind yeah, of data absolutely so, absolutely yeah. yes and, and sometimes we've gone a bit too we've been too academic you know i think driven by sort of academic research which is f fine for writing up papers i don't you know writing up this immersion is not as easy in the science scientific publication but i think for us as M ng you know working in the field it, it's actually more rich i think i feel to yeah. kind of yeah have experienced the realities of the people even if you can't write it up in a very yeah yeah way and so that this fascinating and are you um uh, you're working on your phd right now are you incorporating this in um with your phd this kind of immersive research yes exactly so yes i am i'm it's very exciting <laughs> i'm i because this this new project in malawi is a five-year long term with a big huge research piece it's got sort of so it's got this qualitative work which we started with you know the immersion and all of that I was just describing but there's a big huge baseline that's happened alongside and uh, in this project we are there's a big cluster randomized trial which is i don't know if everybody knows but it's when you sort of randomly allocate groups to receive a different intervention and then you compare over time the impact on malnutrition, child development, and then the cost effectiveness. So these different intervention arms, so there's, one is a control, so they receive the mm -hmm. normal government sort of services, and then one arm received a, a big behavior change piece, which is focused on, you know, improving exclusive breastfeeding, complementary feed, sort of uh, weaning, complementary feeding, hygiene, just everything that will, uh, hopefully improve the child's you know growth and development so he doesn't get ill every too much and then another pe then there's a cash transfer so basically every woman who's got a child from pregnancy to the age of two to the child age till until the ch her child is age two that she will receive a very small amount of money to help her with her daily um, you know, just buy things she needs, uh, things like that. And that's been shown to have a, you know, huge impact if you combine things to improve change, beha improve behaviors or sure. caregiving behaviors, I would just say, and uh, with a bit of cash, that can have a big impact. So basically, I've linked up this, my PhD project w with this big RCT, and I'll focus on the imp caregiving behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, so to what extent these interventions are changing behaviors caregiving mm -hmm. um so i'm going to start with you know what are the drivers of caregiving behaviors what are the challenges why are people not exclusively breastfeeding for six months which is the who recommended behavior and then look at how we might how we will be changing it through these different um interventions which would be focused on you know often bringing mothers together to um, discuss topics and, and, and you know share challenges they have but with a facilitator who's trained and um, working with a community-based preschools as well who is who's a good platform for you know improving changing things as well in the community level so it's very much community-based approaches to change things uh, rather than relying too much on the services which are health services which are quite a long way away mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm. So that's so that. Yes, yeah, so it's very exciting. I'm at the start of the PhD. <laughs> I'm just starting to, but I'm very much looking forward to sort of dig in more into all of this data that we'll be getting and find ways to share and learn. You know, that everyone can sort of hopefully benefit from all the the research and the learning that we are going to generate. Yeah, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I, I love this approach. I mean, I, I work with corporates. And so we're all about this behavioral change. And then, you know, um, and, and to your point, it's just, you know, trying to understand what people's needs are, getting people to actually come up with solutions themselves. Yeah. Or, you know, this is this is the North Star. How do we get to the North Star? What are you going to do? What what, do you, what, you, what are your recommendations? Or how, not what are you going to do, but what are your recommendations um, in order to, to get us to that North Star? So um, so I love that. I mean, behavioral change is, um, well, it's a challenge. <laughs> um, but, you know, particularly I would imagine in places that have... Um, um, you know, you know, traditions and the way they've been doing things for a long time, you know, that's, um, you know, something that's difficult to change, but to understand the why behind the behaviors and why people are doing it a certain way certainly helps in that, that the understanding and then to help guide them to change behavior. I hope that exactly. makes sense. No, that's exactly <laughs> it. And I think too much is too much the way we've you know, all, I guess, it's always telling people what to do. Yeah, yeah. You need to yeah. exclusively breastfeed for six months, but there's reasons why people, they don't. I mean, sure. in this case, they just don't trust that their breast milk is, they never feel they have enough. They don't feel like they're eating enough to have enough breast milk. And we know even, I mean, I've breastfed. I know what it's like breastfeeding exclusively for six months is not an easy thing to do. So, yeah, yeah exactly. I find it, I'm fascinated by it. And it's also, yes, I guess, changing the social norms, the negative sort of, some of them very harmful, this sort of food taboos, like in Malawi, for example, many other countries, they believe eggs are bad. You know, there's some beliefs that maybe uh, eating egg, if your child eats an egg, he will become a, a he will be steal it, he'll be a robber or a stealer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and things like that, where when in fact eggs are super nutritious. So, and there we just found, for example, that. Um, so they were adding like green leaves, which are quite nutritious to the sort of traditional maize dish, but overboiling them and putting lots of salt in them to give it a bit more taste. So the overboiling probably removed so, so some of them, there's little tweaks that you could do, little things that you could, you know, change. Um, but one thing we did find is that they, it's it's incredible how poor people are. So in this these communities, they're sort of earning six hundred. They probably have an income of six hundred dollars a year, um, which has um, and over the past year, it's it's become a lot worse. The food prices have gone up a lot. I think we've seen it. We we can hear this on the news, but in fact, just even in Malawi, in countries we don't never hear about, uh, the price of maize has gone up by forty fifty nearly fifty percent, which is their main staple food. The price of oil has doubled. So you can imagine when you hardly have any money anyway to then have to... And then there's on top of it climate change who's just, you know, who will just... The floods will come and your whole crop will disappear or, you know, droughts, which is now happening in on the Horn of Africa and so on. So it, it's so, they've, so on the edge and there's so many different factors in some ways that, deter, that drive the behaviours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very... I find it's quite complex, but it's if you can do something to help 
Yeah, and if you know what those, you understand the complexity, then you can navigate solutions around that complexity. It's the not knowing or the, you know, oh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that, you know, being that thoroughness and certainly, you know, speaking to the people and understanding, you know, you know, I don't know what yield of a crop or, you know, whatever, you know, was there certain kinds of issues with crops, for example, Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, understanding at a local level, um, you know, it's, it's extraordinary what people that do farming can tell you about the environment and tell you, you know, what's going on in the world. Uh, they're the first people I think that really understand that um, all too well. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Really. Well, your project sounds, uh, your PhD project sounds really interesting and I would love to read it when it's done because it sounds just fascinating. Uh, we have a timeline on that. In the five, yeah. Well, I have to between three and five years, so it's not yeah. immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to publish. I think two, three papers. So I think the first one I'm hoping to do one this year, mm-hmm. focused on drivers of caregiving behaviours and determinants, mm-hmm. and then we'll look at the impact later on mm-hmm. of the in- various interventions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I wonder. I'm going to go back to something that you said earlier, um, and it was about when you were in Malawi for the first time when you when you went um, with uh, Save the Children US um, or America, um, uh, and you had said that you had learned all these new skills and there were things that you, you know, you thought that you knew because you had your degree and as such, um, but things like you said, like fundraising and some other elements, more about, I guess, the management side of it, you know, other, all kinds of different things. I'm wondering, do you know if now um, that the um, if you went through this same program, would you be learning these kinds of things? Are these things that are now you know taught in education so that preparing people that want to go into hu- humanitarian aid um, have this kinds of skill sets rather than I mean of course it varies depending on the international organization you're working for, but I think the premises or you know the foundations are very much the same. Do you know if, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like, you know, it sounds like, you know, when you do a business degree, you know, you get the basics and then when you, you know, you get a, you get an MBA, then you get the Uber bit, you know, you get the Uber, mm. you get the more of it. So is there any, any change, do you know, in the education system that, you know, incorporates these really important things? Although I would imagine, people are doing these degrees because they are mission driven or they have a certain expertise that they want to focus on. However, those other elements, they really, um, they're hand in glove with what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I don't know what it, you know, I obviously did these studies thirty a few years ago. <laughs> not, not, yeah, it's not that long ago. Um, <laughs> I definitely felt, I mean, my bachelor's I felt was too academic mm-hmm. and I, I kind of came out and it was a lot sort of, I felt people saying this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. This was development studies. Mm-hmm. We did economics and sociology. And so I didn't feel like it, for me, it wasn't practical enough. I didn't come out with a skill or something mm-hmm. that I was able to do. My master's was definitely more so because we uh, we learned about the survey techniques, how to analyze data, all sorts of different things. I felt, but I think maybe what was lacking, maybe, and I'm sure this has probably changed. And I know that others people have come out of masters in public health and have learned these things. But sort of just how to do log frames, which is a typical NGO, what you know, it's it's a results framework where you sort of start 
with you want to prevent malnutrition up here and then you go down and to prevent malnutrition we need to make sure we improve dietary diversity diet we have to prevent disease and then you go down how do you do how do you prevent disease or well, I mean you need to make sure that people have you know uh, access to oral rehydration salt for diarrhea prevent hygiene education you know so you go down mm. and you have eventually all your activities and then you have indicators and so all of that that is quite a, a skill and I would have that would have been useful to learn for example and I didn't mm-hmm. um, I learned as we went along and I still feel sometimes I, 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 I get mixed up you know you <laughs> get mixed up between an outcome and an output and an input and all of these different vocabulary so there's yeah and then I, I mean I do think there's all of the country level uh, you know stuff that you just need to learn when you're there or you know just I was in so the first country was actually Mali I won't mix up Mali and Malawi but they're two de- Mali's West Africa and so I just understanding how the government you know what government department does that what the policies are what the what how the health system works on the ground whose role is what and then there's all the sort of stuff that nobody talks about about how you sort of work around you know trying to get things done and so on so it's um i think you know as much as uh, the masters or the education program can teach you a lot i think the practice and the mm-hmm. field work for 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 development, I think you just have to get as much field work as you possibly can in any way you can, even if it's not necessarily your topic. Uh, and mm-hmm. it is quite difficult to get those first experiences, I think. I mean, I can just see within Save the Children that we're becoming more and more a bit risk averse. So just of just supporting a student to travel to somewhere which is a bit of a risky place. Uh, and is also there's a budget to it and we don't want people traveling as much as before just also for the carbon footprint and all sorts of so it's it's i think harder to get that first experience Mm -hmm. than it was when i started which is a shame um and then there's i guess also we want to be build getting more students from the countries themselves rather than always you know the american the european students going out Mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah thank you for that that's uh that's yeah it's interesting i mean and yeah. What, now, now you're back in. You're back in studying, so you can poke around and find out what's going on. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. Yeah. But, yeah. Interesting. And and um, you know. But I mean, I think I guess you know that was at the end of the day. Until you have practical experience it, with anything that you do, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Um, and sorry, sorry, I got Mali and uh, Malawi mixed up. So sorry about that. No, no, no. That's <laughs> not every, I even, you know, they're too similar in name. Yeah. Well, and I haven't had a cup of coffee yet this morning, so uh, I'll just write that off to that. So, <laughs> um, so I'd love to to ask you um, about some of the broad stroke some of the challenges that that one faces with nutritional programming um so i mean maybe i should just say in terms of I work with malnutrition, so malnutrition, maybe just to give a little okay. quick background, so that you have different forms of malnutrition. I mean, you have the undernutrition and overnutrition. Overnutrition is more obesity, overweight, which is a problem more of the developed world, but also developing world because there's more and more, you know, in urban centers sort of <clears throat> also problems of overnutrition. 
but undernutrition would be sort of you'll have the chronic malnutrition, which is sort of just over the whole period of a child's life, especially in the first two years. They call it the first 1,000 days, which is from, from pregnancy to two years, where if the child is sick a lot or doesn't have enough good enough quality diets, he, the child won't grow and develop. And so the way you measure it is usually there's too short for their age. So it's not very visible. You wouldn't see that a child is malnourished. You'll just, you'll just say, oh, I'm eight, I'm... I'm three, he's three years old and you put your healthy three-year-old next to it then your child will be a lot taller, for example. And you, that's, it's, it's difficult to sort of see. And then there's a ne- micronutrient deficiencies, which is usually, well, iron is a big, um, you mm. know, iron and vitamin A. There's some quick solutions. But anyway, the, the, the point is with chronic malnutrition. And then the, the acute malnutrition is what we usually see in the news with emergency situations when the child is really emaciated. And that's usually from lack of food lack of calories and any, everything but over a short period of time and he, you can quickly recover if treated with if properly treated so you treat the illness that might be behind but you also can give them these amazing little packets of they call them the first one was plumpy nut it's it's, it's basically very dense food with lots of micronutrients and they just eat that for a whole four weeks and then they recover it's, it's quite amazing interesting oh, yeah okay. so that's the sort of Thank you. I mean, it yeah. depends how bad the child is, but that's a community approach where a mother can actually give it to her child at home. She doesn't have to go and sit in a hospital with this child mm. and leave all the other ones alone. So, um, But I don't work so much in that. I'm more in the chronic malnutrition. I mean, they often happen together, of course, but it's it's focused more on prevention. So you have to sort of... It starts with the adolescent girls that she doesn't get pregnant, you know, before she's... Um, at 13 when she's not ready and her body's not ready and psychologically and so on because a, a young mother will be more likely to have a, a, a child who's underweight when it burn with a low birth born with a low birth weight so it starts during pregnancy if the mother herself is a malnourished then the, the baby will not grow as well in the mm-hmm. in the womb and will be born already underweight and then it continues for example I mean, just the first thing you have to do is give your exclusive breastfeeding. So it starts with breastfeeding within the first hour, giving the colostrum and some, you know, in some places they think it's disgusting. So they would give some other herbal concoction, which would already set the child (laughs) born on some, you know, on getting diarrhea Um, and and. and so, and then exclusively, there's a lot of issues with, you know, uh, early people supplementing breast milk with sort of, you know, sweet something, sweet, whatever it is, something because they don't feel their breast milk is enough and the child is waking up all the time, you know, for all the reasons. And so if that water, is that not clean, they'll get diarrhea and they'll get, become malnourished. And then so over time, they will just have all of these different time, periods of time, but generally it's the first two years which is key also from a cognitive development point of view I mean we can see we can measure the mal- that malnutrition by the child not growing and not following their growth cur- curve but it's harder to see what's happening cognitively so if they're not growing enough they're also their cognitive development isn't happening as as it should either so um so that can be really harmful from a you know, eventually the child won't, won't be as good at school, won't be able to learn as well at school, and later prod- affects productivity, all sorts of things. They've linked sort of this malnutrition and early life to later work productivity, learning, mm. education, all sorts of things. So basically my work is just to, to focus on, yeah, that's mostly the prevention. 
Um, and so the challenges is that it's really complex. You know, it, it's everything is linked to something else. So, uh, you know, yeah, the woman... The, you know the the exclusive the sort of giving a concoction i think this happens in mali where you know born the woman for example is spent the first when she has a a baby she will stay 40 days alone with her baby and it's the grandmother the paternal mother <coughs> who will look after her so her beliefs become incredibly important so you have to then work on the grandmother to kind of change these sort of very old cultural practices uh, that are probably really harmful to the child and so that you know there's a sort of piece of it then there's on the other hand it might be sort of just not enough food and having to change agricultural techniques to adjust to climate change because the things they used to grow don't grow as well anymore because they're you know etc etc in every context it's very different you know in other places well in many places i think hygiene is probably a huge contributor even more than diets um so for example uh you know children just crawling around where the chickens and everyone else is you know and, and eat it. They, they did some stu fascinating stuff i mean fascinating and shocking studies of you know counting how many times a child is putting poop into their mouth and you know every day and so that sort of causes a kind of chronic gut inflammation which prevents the child from well, prevents the nutrients from being absorbed properly. So unless you address the hygiene issue, and again, that's kind of a whole lot of changes within the community, within households to separate the livestock from the children or clean play areas for children or, or you know. Uh, so there's a, there's that for me is the biggest challenge with nutrition is it touch one it's a bit invisible so it's often not prioritized unless you see these emaciated children were so shocking and then it's already too late. It's it's invisible. It affects you know nearly 50, thirty. I mean like yeah forty percent of the children in some cases in many countries. Um, it's underfunded. You know agriculture is way, way more funded because they focus too much on you know focus on staple food and making sure people are not hungry, but in fact making sure there's a quality diet and all of these interventions. So those are the challenges, and it's sort of many challenges. But at the same time, I think sometimes when you know, when you see the changes and some countries have made huge progress in sort of reducing the prevalence of chronic malnutrition over the past de couple of decades that have been really impressive. But mm -hmm. it does take a, a like a multi-sectoral, you sort of all, you know, the agriculture department, agriculture, health, nutrition, education, all kind of working hand in hand to sort of focus on improving all sorts of different things, preventing early marriage and pregnancy, improving gender equality, improving access to nutritious foods, etc., etc. Mm. Yeah. Incredibly. <laughs> it was a longer explanation. No, it's just, no, I, 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 that's why I invited you here because it's incredibly complex and it's just, I mean, so many yeah, but, um, and can, thinking about all of these elements that, uh, that, you know, are, are contributing. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's overwhelming. And yeah, I mean, that's all, that's a lot of data. It's a lot of research. It's a lot of, you know, in the community to understand, you know, how people live and, um, and, you know, thank you for sharing that, the difference between, you know, chronic and, and, and malnutrition, you know, you know, and, and you, 
thinking that we in the Western world will always see, you know, you'll see children that don't look healthy because it's very visible, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that, you know, that, of course, that's what we usually always see, you know, and as you said, you can't see what's happening cognitively um, in the development of a child, um, you know, you can measure it in different ways, but you can't physically, physically exactly, see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess anemia is the other one, mm. uh, which is linked to iron deficiency, but also parasitic parasite infection so mm-hmm. you know we found in Mali for example that 60% of the school children were anemic and anemia I don't know if any you've ever been anemic or but basically you it's definitely not visible you can't but you can't really concentrate when you're yeah. so it's like when you look at your computer and you think oh this is really simple but I just can't figure out how to do it mm-hmm. so you can imagine what it that the impact will in schools or you know a child trying to learn and you just can't oh this is too complicated so um yeah, but it's invisible. That's exactly it. So it doesn't get prioritized as much. Hmm. Well, thank you. I, it, it, incredibly fascinating and, and, and complex. And, you know, I'm just I'm just thinking, you know, projects that I work on in a corporate world, they're very simple uh, compared to this when we think they're very complex. But so many factors and so many actors um, yes. and so many conditions um, and climate and and traditions and all of these things are just layers. You know, it's a lot of detective work um, to really yes, understand. Exactly. Yeah, detective work is yeah. a good way of putting right. it. Yeah, there you go. You can go work for Interpol afterwards yeah. <laughs> or whatever, whoever does that work. So um, so I'll mention that um, um, the work that you do um, uh, w- um, uh, it contributes to several of the sustainable development goals. And those include um, two, which is zero hunger, um, three, health and well-being, four, quality education, five, gender equality, six, clean water and sanitation, and probably even many, many others, including 17 partnerships for the goals. So um, I'd imagine, yeah, Yeah, touch on all of them. Yeah, Yeah, on all of them. So one of the things that um, I I mentioned in the introduction is that you also do non-humanitarian work. Can you explain what does that mean, um, non-humanitarian work? No, well, actually, I think maybe I should, and realize maybe I should (laughs) <laughs> so what I meant by non-humanitarian is it is in development we often divide up by emergency. Uh, oh, so you know, okay. yeah. uh, so what I meant by humanitarian is sort of we often call our humanitarian nutrition colleagues their work on emergencies. So these would be refugee camps, uh, setting up quick fix, quick solutions. Uh, you know, would be treatment. Whereas non I'm non. I would say non-humanitarian. But I realize it's good you say because it's obviously confusing to. Is I work in more stable, develop, yep. long-term development settings, um, you know, like the Mali at the time was, Malawi, Mozambique, all of these, most of the countries who are not in an emergency situation. So I wouldn't be going off to, um, you know, an, the earthquake, somewhere that's just had an earthquake or somewhere that's just had floods or famines and the refugee camps. They, they, the approach is very different because it's less focused on finding long-term services and prev prevention prevention but it's more about saving lives quickly just putting in place quickly uh, you know a parallel health system to treat children put safe spaces for women so that's mm-hmm. the difference between the two but of course they come together you know a country which you think is stable the next minute suddenly there's some you know Myanmar was a stable country then there's a coup d'etat and now it's an emergency everyone's in an emergency situation mm-hmm. so they join together but that's what I meant by 
non-humanitarian. I don't feel like I'm an ex uh, good at emergency situations, I guess. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. That's yeah. So you're you're focused on more long-term um, well-being rather than yeah emergencies. So yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's in my work. I mean, of course, in ANSI, I do a few little things here. <laughs> I don't even dimension because it's nothing probably, Darcy, compared to you. But I have been quite keen to just also f- work directly, have a bit more direct action uh, locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so I, did, I went a few times and did uh, helped with food distributions. But I think I was curious to see how they worked. And then, you know, helping with homework with the refugee children in um, ANSI, but not very much because it's hard to find the time. I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe the, to, to, to do that more consistently. But it's nice to do things directly because I feel like I'm often working indirectly with all my colleagues and they're mm-hmm. the ones, you know, there's so many layers uh, that I don't often get the experience to work directly with people who we support, I guess, through our programs. Mm-hmm. Do you get to, to go in country often? Or, I mean, I guess it. Maybe I should say before COVID, were you going yes, often? Yes. Yeah. I, I, so I went to Malawi for the first time in February. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was just, I loved it. I mean, as much as we managed to do a lot online, but it was, it's just not the same when you go and you're just building, just with my own colleagues to build, to get that relation. It's that chat that you have over lunch or, you know, all of that sort of thing, which is mm-hmm. so important. So not as much. And also I think we're all trying to reduce our carbon footprints as NGOs. So, so uh, we we're not supposed to. I mean, we have less money, less. There's the climate issue, and so so there won't be as much travel. But yes, I still be traveling a little bit. I used to travel a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot more. Maybe once every two months would go to a country, work on a project, mm-hmm. which was yeah, I loved. I mean, it's always so interesting. It's always a learning curve for me. I always feel like I learn probably way more than I mm-hmm. give back, but. Uh, that's what makes it always so interesting. Isn't mm. it? It's always different. Well, you're learning and then synthesizing, and that'll be given back in some capacity or another. So I'm yes, sure, I you, sure you eventually are. Yeah, you got to digest what you learn and, and uh, yeah, and then give back. So, yeah. well, this has been super fascinating, and I've learned, I have learned so much, and really thank you so much. Um, but before I'm going to let you go, I, I think it's, um, you know, you, you highlighted a couple of things um, with regards to changes, maybe, you know, not being able to go in country to do, um, you know, to have that first opportunity and as such. But um, so that's one, one thing, but I'd love if you could just share some of your advice or tips on if, uh, if um, someone was interested in pursuing a career in public health nutrition for an, an NGO, what, what would be some advice that you would give them? Um. I mean, I think, well, I'd think to, to I think the qualifications, you, you'd kind of do need to have a master level quali- mm-hmm. qualification, but then also find any way possible to get some field experience. I mean, I would even, if I wasn't able, now, if I wasn't able to kind of get something while I was sitting in here in ANSI, I would maybe, comb- I don't know, just go out to a country, travel around and just go on the knock on some local NGO door and say, I'll volunteer for you, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever to, to, to get that, that field experience. I think that's what's, um, to combining the two together. Mm-hmm. I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to think, yeah, I can't think of, f- from a background to get at least a job within an NGO or even with the UN or, you know, you do need sort of, I 
I think some of the UNs you need even a PhD, you know, so mm-hmm. there's certain, but you do need like many years experience in different countries, ideally. Mm. And it sounds like being multilingual is also very helpful. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Multilingual. But I think there's some niche areas like, you know, having some sort of that are very in demand, like social and behavior change. I think it's a very difficult um, skill to find when we recruit is that social that behavior change sort of approach. So I think, you know, I would if I was to do it again, I would probably spend more time trying to learn some of the different techniques and approaches and methods. And there's a gap definitely in countries, I feel like, with that particular skill. Same with monitoring and evaluation research is another area that, you know, there's often gaps, but less. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, those are jobs of the future that you're uh, <laughs> you're outlining, uh, or for my son who's in his first year of university. So there we go. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. That's been uh, wonderful advice. I have really enjoyed our conversation, and as I said just a moment ago, I've learned a lot. Um, I have incredible adm- admiration for your good self and your colleagues for the work that you do. Um, I'm sure that it's probably very challenging at times and hard. And, and hard to watch, you know, as things unfold. Uh, but knowing that you know you, you're doing good work and um, and and you know f- helping helping children is must be such a rewarding um, job to do and wake up every day to do something like that. <laughs> right, thanks, Darcy. Uh, yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So, thank you so much, and really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. So, thank you so much, Natalie. Thanks, Darcy, for the opportunity as well to talk about it. I don't do that very often. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you don't. Yeah, I bet you. And I, I have to say to the listeners, and Natalie's like, I don't really know if I have much to say. And I'm like, well, you have a lot to say. And it's incredible, you know. And I, as I said at the beginning, I think it's, you know, it, it's wonderful for listeners to understand this complexity and all the things because we never, we just see at the other end. And, you know, that there's either a crisis, as you said, or, you know, donations or, you know, reading in the newspaper, but actually understanding sort of lifting up the hood and seeing, um, you know, what happens because there are a lot of moving parts. um, And it's not just a matter of, you know, bringing food in and delivering it. it there's all kinds of you know complexity i mean i know that's 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 not what you're focused on that's an emergency situation mm. but you know in one's mind that could be potentially what they're thinking about so mm. um um so yeah so i feel much more educated and learned um a lot from you so thank you Oh, thank you. Great. Um, and I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Women 17 podcast, Conversations with Global Women, Changing the World, One Sustainable Development Goal at a Time. We welcome your feedback from today's podcast and wish you a happy, safe, and productive day.